Hi, everybody. Good morning. How are you today? So nice to see your lovely faces. Those of you online, I can't see your lovely faces, but uh, I know you're there. So we're glad that God's gathered us here today for church. Uh, we're going to continue, as Adam said, uh, in the book of Jonah. Jonah is a fascinating person in the scriptures, is he not? You know, he's, he, he looms large in our minds. There's a big footprint for such a small little book in the Bible. Uh, four chapters, 48 verses. You can read the whole book in about seven minutes, maybe five minutes, maybe nine minutes, okay? So it's a quick read. And yet, our, our culture is like infatuated with this guy. Uh, Christy and I were watching, um, we're re-watching all the Marvel films in the reader home. Uh, what? And in the first Avengers movie, Tony Stark makes a reference to Jonah right before he kills one of those big whale things. Uh, remember? Remember? Nobody? Okay. Well, you need to watch it. <laughs> but most people know about Jonah and the fish, but when you dig a little deeper into this book, it's kind of surprising because Jonah, the real person, surfaces here, and he's not really the pure hero that we're, that we're used to when we read authors of, of biblical books. I mean, he's sort of a hero, perhaps, but he's also deeply flawed. And the way that the book ends, as we're going to find out in a moment, he leaves us hanging. It's a total cliffhanger. You're like, what happens next? Like, what are you doing, Jonah? And so uh, we're going to see this, and we're going to talk about it. So like, uh, like we said, let's, let's go ahead and read. We're going to start... Uh, in, in the last verse of chapter 3, verse 10, and then we'll just read the rest of the book. So here we go. When God saw what they did, they being the Ninevites, they were repenting, uh, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Spain, to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord's like, shut up, punk. No, the Lord's like, do, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The end. 
<laughs> what just happened? Okay, what's going on here? I mean, uh, I think we, we, we read something that's very clear, but here's what's very clear. Remember, if you're with us, the chapter two Jonah, the Jonah that says a psalm in the belly of the whale and is worshiping and repenting, he's not the same Jonah as chapter four, who's arguing with the Lord over a big revival that's happening a stone's throw from where he's sitting. And so we see in this final section here that Jonah takes some significant steps backwards spiritually. Hence, uh, we're going to talk about this term regression. Uh, Jonah falls back really hard. So on your outline, there's... um, there's, a, there's a, a journey that Jonah goes through, and I want to talk about this just in review. So in chapter one, Jonah's journey, he is in this journey of rebellion, and you can fill this in on your notes. Remember this, God says to go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, no way. And so he's just flat out just saying no to God. He's running away from God's call. He's running away from God's mission, God's plan for his life, and he's in full tilt rebellion. He's just totally like going the opposite direction, but then God gets his attention, sends the fish, swallows him whole, takes him to the bottom of the ocean. He's got seaweed wrapped around. You know, remember, he's in the belly for three days, and, um, and you know what he's eating? He's eating sushi, right? Right? That's what he's eating. No, boy. I mean, and so he comes to this place of repentance in this low spot, and so he does cry out to God. He says, I'm sorry. And so this chapter two, that's the operative word. Then in three, he does obey. It's, it's about obedience. It's about following God's will. And so he does go. He travels to Nineveh, 500 miles, and he preaches, and he, uh, he dispatches the word of God, and he obeys God, and th- things seem to be going better. But then here, as we just read, he takes steps backwards, and so the operative word is regression. We've said this uh, a lot, that um, the spiritual life is very rarely this like straight upward line from the time that you come to know the Lord till he takes you to heaven of spiritual progress. Many times, for most of us, there's forward progress, and then there's what? There's backwards regression, or there's spiritual stagnation. You can call it plateauing. You can, you can call it like spiritual stuckness. This is a thing. We've said this many times. There's, there's times of spiritual growth, and you feel so close to God, and, and God's word is alive, and when you come into worship services, you feel and sense the presence of the Lord in your life, and you feel like it's easy to obey God, and it's easy to live out the Christian faith, and Jesus is there. And then there's times of struggle, times where we don't, don't feel the presence of God, and, and, and we feel like we're going backwards. We feel like we're, we're maybe there's an old sin that starts to surface, and it, and it, it sort of blocks us from, from the Lord in this way. And so walking with Jesus is, it's an up and down journey, is it not? I've never seen a person who went from salvation to heaven and just, and it's always just progressed. I've never seen it personally happen. Maybe it's a thing, maybe it does happen, but I think for Jonah, his journey reflects a lot of points of contact for us. We've said this many times, we are Jonah. Reading Jonah is like looking in a mirror, just change the details. And so we have this passage that shows us this phase of spiritual regression. And I want to I spend a little time today talking about why. 
Jonah spiritually regress? Why did he go backwards? If this is a thing that happens, it's not, I think, enough to just say it happens. I think we got to look into the reasons why, because we're going to see if this is applicable to us, right? And so this is the study today. And, uh, and we're going to bounce off this a little bit. So let's ask these questions of the text this morning in Jonah 4. Why do I go backwards in my faith? Why does that happen? Or uh, how come I get spiritually stuck or stagnated? Why does that happen? What are the factors here? Maybe this is happening in your life right now. Maybe this is something you've just come out of. Uh, so either way, we've dealt with this or we're dealing with this. So let's learn at least a couple of the reasons why it happens. First of all, on your notes, reasons for spiritual regression. Jonah's outward behavior conformed to God's will, but his inward heart was hardened towards the Lord. Look at this passage on the screen. I've kind of summarized things. Uh, it's from Jonah 3 all the way to 4.1. Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, as we said, according to the word of the Lord. He, and he called out, he preached, he proclaimed the message. The people of Nineveh believed God, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. So what we're seeing here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is Jonah did obey, but it was an outward obedience. He did the thing. He went to Nineveh. He technically fulfilled what God had called him to do. You know, he preached, albeit as minimally as possible, probably the worst sermon in the Bible, only five words. He literally just, he said as few words as possible. But then in chapter four, his true motivations begin to surface. Look at the descriptors that show what was happening in Jonah's heart. The Hebrew says, exceedingly displeased. This, this is a, Jonah saw the revival. He was exceedingly displeased about this. In the Hebrew, you could render this in English, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That's actually the literal translation in the Hebrew. So check this out. Guys, he saw God's revival being poured out on this pagan city, and he looked at it, and he called that evil. He said, this is bad. This is evil. What God was doing, Jonah did not want to happen so much that he labeled that as being evil itself. The Assyrians repenting, turning from their sin, this was an evil thing. I just think this is a yikes moment. This is like not good. Jonah's attitude was so rotten that he could not see God pouring his grace out on someone else. Jonah wanted justice so bad for other people, but not for himself. He only wanted mercy for himself. And this is what happens when our hearts are spiritually hardened. We want justice for the person who we think is jacked up, but we want mercy for ourselves. And so it's this dichotomy. It's this like, it's this like well, I get the best of both worlds. And, and so his heart became like stone towards this people that didn't know him. And so this is what's coming out. It's like he's vomiting this. There's a lot of vomit in this book. This is emotional vomit. Now, the second descriptor says, and he was angry. This is, the, this is the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is he's burning up with anger. So he's exceedingly displeased, and he's burning up with passionate anger over this revival. In his heart of hearts, guys, he hated, he hated, hated, hated these people. He hated them so much. 
He was so biased against them because of what they had done and because of their reputation. It was well-earned. Remember, these were the most violent people of the day. And in, and in, in terms of violence and terror and disgusting behavior, Assyrians amongst all the peoples of the world and world history, they're like top five or top or bottom five or bottom ten. So these folks were nasty, nasty folks. And so he hated them. And he hated that they were getting a chance at God's grace. It's evil what you're doing, God, and I'm so angry about it. He was that opposed to what the Lord was doing. So the obedient prophet of chapter 3, we learned that obedience wasn't genuine. It was purely outward. It was totally external. It was technical obedience. There was no authenticity. It was essentially, okay, fine, God. This is what you want me to do? Fine. Fine, I'll go. I'll, I'll, I'll just go to Nineveh. And he doesn't say this, but I bet he stomped all the way there. <laughs> Kicking rocks, rotten attitude. I don't know, parents. Um, have you ever had this happen with your kids? Where, where you ask your kids to help out? You know, hey, um, hey would you empty that dishwasher? Fine. Hey, I'm just asking you to help out around the house, you know, just to contribute. Whatever, dad, fine. Whatever, fine. And then they stomp and you're just like, I'm going to murder you now. You know, it's just like one of those things. That's like, that's like, that's like literally what's happening here. Jonah responded out of compulsion, not compassion. So the Bible is calling this out. The Bible is letting us see this very clearly and it's not a good model. This is a negative model. The Bible's like, this attitude isn't good. Don't be a Jonah. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal who, who, who stands in the way of what God is wanting to do to pour out his mercy on another person, another people group, people that you don't like. Here's, here's the teaching. External behavioral modification is not God's big plan for humanity, for you and for me. God is not interested in your technical obedience to him if your heart is hardened to him at the same time. God didn't send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and to be buried in a grave and then rise again by the resurrection power of the Father for all of us to stop watching The Bachelor and swear a little less. You should stop watching The Bachelor. That's a terrible show. But that's a small vision, isn't it? Some people reduce down Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts. Well, those are the people that don't get drunk. Those are the people that don't have sex. Those are the people that don't do this, don't do that. And it's basically a list of do's and don'ts, and that's Christianity in people's mind. But this is not God's plan for you and I. God is our father. And what parent, what dad or mom is shooting for that as a huge goal in their lives? Well, we don't care if our kids love us. We don't care if they love each other or treat other people with kindness and integrity. We just want the Christmas card pick to turn out cute. <laughs> That's not good parenting. Kardashians, are you listening? Are you listening out there? Someone send this to Chloe, okay? I think she needs to get a refresh on this. Who cares if you look good from the outside if your heart is rotten towards God? It's not a real faith. It's an external faith. God is a real God. 
In every sense of the word, he desires your faith to be real and to be authentic. And the way that happens is it's from the inside out. It's from the inside out. It's not from the outside in. You know what system is is fully interested in just outside behavior? It's the system of religion. Religion is what is like a fake Christianity. Religion, that's its big thing. It's just outward behavior. Some of you have been raised in religious environments where all you were taught is just external behavioral modification, disciplines and things, and you were never taught the gospel. You were never taught to fall in love with Jesus. You were never taught the beauty of his sacrifice and that when you come to faith and, and your heart is transformed from the inside out, you, you, you're like you skipped, you were, you, your, your life, your teaching skipped the biggest part of what we, what we do here. And the reason is because religion loves to exchange genuine heart transformation for just behave properly, would you? Religion cannot do heart change. Only the gospel can. You know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, as, as many of you know. I've told you some of my stories. And, and, and so I, I, I was introduced to Christianity at a young age. Um, some of my friends would drag me to church and I did not understand church at all. Church was a foreign place. I didn't even know what the scriptures were, the Bible. And, and, um, and one of the things that was a barrier of me actually coming to Christ was, was a lot of religious people. Do you know what I'm saying? Religious people can be a barrier. So, so Jonah was religious in the sense that it was all external and not internal. And he was a barrier between the Ninevites and the Lord God. And that's what happens in religious environments. This is why religious people are such a turnoff. This is why so many are not in church today, because what is portrayed as Christianity is just religion and it's not the real thing. And this is why Jonah frustrates us so much as a Bible character, as a person, because he's slipping into hard-hearted religious stuff. The message of the scriptures is clear, not only here in Jonah 4, but throughout the Bible. God wants our hearts. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. Give your heart to him. Give your heart to him. Don't give your external behavior to him. He doesn't want that. He wants your heart first. He wants your genuine, authentic self to be, to be put at the feet of the cross, the foot of the cross. His big plan for you and for me is the same. It's to be inwardly transformed from the inside out by the power of Christ's love and grace. Here's a passage. There's so many passages that talk about this. Here's just one. It's found in the New Testament. It's, it's from the Apostle Paul. It's in the book of Philippians. He says this to his friends in this church that he helped start. He says, I'm sure of this, Philippian Christians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. In you. A good work. Where did the good work start? Where did the good work begin? Read that. Look at that. Where did it begin? In you. Not outside of you, but in you. Not, not, not outside, but inside. You see, guys, when our hearts are changed, obedience will flow out of that willingly, freely, lovingly, joyously, imperfectly, if I'm going to add another adverb here. But it's not forced obedience. It's not shame-based obedience. It's not... 
it's not guilt-based obedience. It's grace-based obedience, grace-powered obedience. And it's coming from an authentic place. God wants to win us over from within and then empower us by his spirit to live like Jesus freely, eagerly from the heart. Jonah didn't get this right here. You know, the Apostle Paul, if we do a little more study, he talks about in many of his New Testament letters about this eagerness to serve Jesus. He's eager to serve. He's, he's willingly, he's excited to serve God. He was eager to preach the gospel in the book of Romans 1.15. He was eager to remember the poor in the book of Galatians 2.10. He was eager to spend time with other believers, his fellow brothers and sisters in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. He was eager to honor Jesus in Philippians 1.20. He was internally animated, internally driven by a transformed heart, by Christ's spirit inside him to want to follow Jesus, to want to obey, and wanting to fulfill his calling, not in a technical sense, but as a worship song back to Jesus for what he's done, as a worship song back to the Lord in thanks and in gratitude. Oh God, you have done so much for me. You have sacrificed so much for me. The, the least I could do is not to try to repay you in any way, but the least I could do is live my whole heart for you and your will for my life. This is the heart that we see in the scriptures. And when we regress spiritually, we lose sight of this dynamic. So here's the thing. If you're in a spiritual aggression season right now, this could be the reason. We spiritually stagnate when we make following Jesus all about the external do's and don'ts, all about looking good spiritually instead of having a soft heart towards the Lord and his will his perfect love for us. Are you, are you stuck spiritually? You don't have to raise your hand, but are you stuck spiritually? I want you to pray this week and think about these things on a deeper level this week as you go home and wrestle with this. Read Jonah 4 again. This could be a reason why you have plateaued, why you're stuck, is that the externals have become more important than the internals. Have you become religious? Mm. Okay. The next factor, there, I had like six of these, but I'm only going to give you two. So you're welcome. <laughs> but this one is a tough one. The main focus, the next factor, was on Jonah's personal comfort rather than on what really mattered. Did you see this? After the revival starts, it says that Jonah leaves the city of Nineveh and goes to a place just outside of the city and it says to see what would happen. Now, the, what, what is Jonah doing here? The commentators tell us from the context, and I think they're right, that Jonah wasn't going to like a hillside to overlook the city to worship and thank God for him pouring out revival. It, it, that wouldn't happen based on what he's saying here. What we think is happening is that Jonah was so angry about what was happening he went up to the top of this hillside to the east or this place that he could see the city because he thought that those pagans, they couldn't actually keep going in their repentance and he was waiting for them to get tired of it and then the Lord's justice would rain down fire and then it would go all Sodom and Gomorrah on them. He was waiting for that to happen. He was looking and hoping for that to happen. 
Basically, he's like, yeah, these pagans aren't legit. This is just surface. This is all just, you know, this is just lip service. This is just glossy packaging. They don't really love God. They don't really want to repent. And pretty soon in a couple of days, this thing's going to turn the other way. And I want to be on top watching it when the fire and brimstone comes. And he's basically like excited about it. He's waiting. He's like, yeah, okay, okay, God. Angel of death time. (laughs) That's what he's doing up there. Nice attitude, huh? Nice attitude, Jonah. Okay. Look at verse six again. Now, when the Lord appointed, okay, so he's up, he's up on this hill. Well, let me read the verse. Now, when the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head uh, to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, he's on the hillside, and he's waiting a while, and it got hot, because this is northern Iraq, all right? And we don't know if this is summertime, but in the summertime, it's pretty hot there, like 120 Fahrenheit on average, like every day. And he was up there, and it was uncomfortable, and there was hot winds, and so the Lord does this little mini miracle. It's very odd. He sends a plant to sprout up overnight and provide shade for him so that when he's waiting and watching for the justice of God to rain down on these evil Ninevites, he's comfortable while he's doing it. And the most excited that he gets, most glad he gets here in the book is right here, and it's over his comfort. I'm saved from my discomfort. I get to watch judgment from a couch with a little bit of AC flowing. Now, the Hebrew for glad is, is to not just be glad, like, hey, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that. No, this is like a stronger word. It's to delight. It's to, it's to be rejoicing in. Now he's happy. Now he's comfortable. Now he's blessed. Not just a little bit exceedingly glad. Remember a minute ago, he was exceedingly angry. Now he's exceedingly glad. He's not glad about the revival happening amongst 120,000 people. He's glad over this plant that cools him off. And it's an Assyrian word, this plant. It's literally not even a Hebrew plant. It's an Assyrian plant. It's a fast growing vine. Come on, Jonah. What is going wrong with you here, bud? I mean, this guy, he's killing us. And then God sends a worm to kill the plant, to eat the plant, to kill his comfort. And then it says Jonah got super angry again. God is trying to get through to this guy. The whole situation with this was kind of a divine setup for Jonah to see himself where his priorities were so out of whack. God's like, hey, Jonah, what makes you super happy in life? What makes you super glad? Also, what makes you really mad? God knows this because he knows everything. But he's like, I'm going to show you. And so he sends the plant and then the worm. And Jonah's like, yeah, I did. I love the comfort. I love the comfort plant. Bring back the comfort plant, God. That was when my life was going well. The Lord's like, Joe, you care more about this dumb plant than those people down there. Your passions are misplaced. This is what's happening here. This is kind of ugly, Jonah, isn't it? I think you know where I'm going here, don't you, though? Hmm. Let's, get, let's just get really real right now. 
so many Christians, especially in America, care more about their comfort than anything else. They care about increasing their comfort, protecting what comfort they have, passionately pursuing new forms of spiritual comfort, and they do whatever they can to avoid discomfort. So you know how you kill spiritual growth in your life, friends, is make protecting our comfort our top priority. This is how you kill spiritual growth. I've had more conversations with Christians, unfortunately, in my, in my ministry time, adults, that basically went like this. Hey, Billy, God called me into the mission field when I was young, but I didn't want to go there because I had a lot of dreams. I had a lot of goals in my life, a lot of plans that wouldn't happen if I were to follow this calling. And so I never went to the mission field and I got a job instead. Hey, Billy, God called me into ministry. God called me to, to do what you're doing, you know, a version of it. But I didn't really see how that would be financially viable. And so I, I basically took the safe route and I went and got a job and started a career. God called me into seminary to study theology, Billy, but I didn't want to disappoint my family. I, can, I just, can I just talk about this? I know this pressure. I know this pressure personally. I went to a very expensive university and I got a, almost a full ride, essentially a full ride. My family was really proud of me when I was in my undergrad. They were super proud of me. And I was killing it. I was getting good grades in civil engineering. I was, uh, I was working in Los Angeles for a, a structural engineer who, um, who was one of the, 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 the principal engineers on one of the big high-rises, the Bank of America building in downtown Los Angeles. That building caught on fire in 1984, and my boss engineered it so well, it didn't even touch it. And I was working for him, and he was training me on how to become a structural engineer. And it's a six-year journey after you graduate, at least in, in California. And you got to get past all these tests and do all these things. And then you get your SE license, and you can stamp plans. And you know now you're on the hook legally, yeah? But it's, so it's this process. And I was on the way. And my family was cheering me on. And they were like, you're, we're so proud of you. And then my senior year, I had to have this really uncomfortable conversation with my entire family to tell them that I was not going into civil engineering. Rather, I was going to quit my job. I was going to get my degree, but quit my job. And I was going to do college missions work. And I was going to raise support. And my family went like literally like tilt. My, my poor Swiss family. <laughs> I do feel bad for them. They're like, you're an idiot. I had conversations when my family was like at the dinner table. Billy, you are such an idiot. What are you doing? You're throwing your life away. Do you think that was uncomfortable for me? Slightly. <laughs> my mom's husband at the time. Can I just talk real for a minute? Uh, he, he, was, he was my stepdad. Now he's my ex-stepdad. I don't know. I'll make you a chart sometime. <laughs> <laughs> My, our family is so goofy. We've had 14 marriages between our parents, Christy and I. And so they're stepbrothers, sisters, ex-stepbrothers. Anybody have ex-stepbrothers and sisters? Isn't that weird? You're just like, well, my ex-stepsister. You know, you're like, what? That's our family. Pretty fractured. So my stepdad at the time, he was a deconverted evangelical. Okay, you've heard this term, deconverted. He was raised in a, a great church like Redeemer's. 
And then he went to college and he just walked away from his faith. He was deconverted. He used to serve at Billy Graham crusade events. And then he just walked away from all that. Walked away from Jesus. Walked away from the drop kicked his Bible. And then I come along. And I'm like a Jesus loving, like job quitting fanatic for Christ. And so he sits me down and he basically is rebuking me, telling me that I am completely violating the principles of character and integrity. And he's my, he's my stepdad. I'm 21. I'm just like, imagine me, how immature I was at 21. Okay. Just imagine that. That's like, (laughs) wow. I didn't care about comfort. I didn't care about that. Now, I'm not the hero of this story. I'm just one example of many who've given up way more than I ever gave up to follow the call of God on their life. But it was uncomfortable. If we only sought comfort as a a marker of God's will, none of us would do anything for Jesus because everything worth doing for Christ, guess what, is uncomfortable. You think it was uncomfortable for Jesus to be hanging on the cross, paying for our sins and bleeding out? It was fairly uncomfortable. And so this is the life that you and I signed up for when we said yes to Christ. We said yes to a life of denying ourselves in the name of Jesus, which is always uncomfortable to say no to yourself. You're selfish, narcissistic, fleshly self, and you just say no, and you say yes to God. This is uncomfortable. God called me to serve in my community. I heard this one. Billy, God's called me to serve in my community. I even heard a sermon on it. It's biblical. It's God's will. God says in his word, Ephesians 4, I have a ministry. It says I'm gifted. I'm called. I'm sent. I'm part of God's plan, Billy, to help others connect to Jesus. But it was too inconvenient to serve. I have to work out with my trainer at 430. This is American Christianity. God called me to be financially generous with my church, Billy, but I bought a second boat so I couldn't afford to give. So many people use their generosity money that was meant by God to resource the kingdom, to resource the ministries for the gospel, to resource their church. They use it for comfort stuff. Stuff, toys, vacations, boats, all these things. This is American Christianity. Go to Texas. This is like Texas Christianity. Everybody's like, oh, it's the Bible Belt. No, I take West Coast Blue State Christianity because Christians like, it's not cultural. But this is what you see. God wants me to invite a friend to our community group, Billy, but it's too uncomfortable to put myself out there. Guys, when we put our comfort ahead of God's calling, it's a huge roadblock to spiritual growth. Jonah is our negative model. So two questions to suss this out. What do I get exceedingly glad about? What gives me the most life? Is it, is it joy? Uh, is it stuff that brings me joy? Is it comf- comfort stuff that I get the most excited about? Or is it God stuff? I'm talking to Christians now. If you're a non-Christian in here, great. But this is, if you serve Jesus, this is what, what you're in for. So full disclosure moment. And then the other question, what do I get angry about? What makes me angry? Do I get the most angry when my barista messes up my $6 coffee order? 
Is that what gets me spooled up the most in my day? When someone cuts me off or when there's a big line at the grocery store because they're understaffed or whatever? Or do I wake up and get angry about people living without the gospel? The 3,200 people groups on planet Earth that have never had the scriptures translated into their native language, which represents over a billion human beings on this planet. Do I get angry about that? Or, eh, I don't know, Garden Valley traffic is ticking up these days and I'm torqued off about it. Come on, let's get serious about our faith. There, is, there, are, there are people all over Africa who don't have the gospel and they don't have clean water. What if our church were to, be, were to be so generous that we were able to punch in water wells for villages that not only for 2,000 people per, per well, for 20 years that thing's going to work and not break. And then we bring the, the Jesus film in there and we start a church and we give them water and we give them medicine. And for the first time in human history, they have clean water to drink, they're disease-free and they have the gospel. That I think we can get excited about. What if, what if, what if like what, what gets you the most excited and the most angry is something missional that's, not, that's very uncomfortable? All these things like wrapped into one. In, in my last church, we went down to Tijuana and we built houses for families that were living in the dirt. And you could literally see San Diego from the tops of the hillsides. And we, we, we would just like, we would go in and the ministry would, would, would help us identify families. And that both mom and dad had jobs. This is not, this is not, this is not like, I don't want to say too much. This is real poverty. And we would build a house for and then hand the keys and preach the gospel and hug them and give them groceries and, and give them furniture and the kids get toys. And then we give, we give the family so much food that they have enough to give to their neighbors and they can talk about the gospel. And then we do this and we're like, we're just a drop in the bucket because there's, there's a thousand more families that we could serve today, tomorrow. God, help me. Help us. Help us get outside of ourselves, outside of our comfort zones. Help us to not go to Disneyland one time and keep driving down the five and bump into the border and keep going into a neighborhood and a colonia of people that need Jesus and they need just a fraction of what we have. Does that make you excited? Does that get you angry? Does that make you uncomfortable? If yes, you could be now finally getting the point of Jonah. So it ends. What happened to Jonah? What did he do? It's just a total cliff. This is not an American way to storytell. So the commentators believe this is done on purpose because one of the points of the book is to challenge the reader. What will you do? You are Jonah. You are Jonah chapter five. Which direction will you take? And so this last slide, when we talk about Jonah's journey, we can put ourselves in there. There's a question mark. It's a cliffhanger. It's meant for you and for me and anybody else who's ever read Jonah to make a decision. Am I going to stay spiritually stuck and am I going to be in regression mode or am I going to Am I going to once again grab hold of what God wants me to do? You are sent. You are called. You are gifted. 
And God wants great things in your life and through your life to impact those who don't know Jesus, who need Jesus. There's Ninevites everywhere who hate God, who, who just don't know. God says they don't know their, their right hand from their left. God's not being uh, insulting here. He's saying there's spiritual darkness. Their minds have been blinded, and we have the truth. And so he wants to use us to communicate his love and grace to a world that needs it desperately. Are you Jonah chapter 5? Yes, you are. The decision is, which direction will you take? Okay, that's enough for now. I have browbeat you enough. Hopefully not. Hopefully it's the scripture and we can grab hold of that. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. And then what I want is next week, even though we're done with Jonah, we're not because we're going to do one more week of preaching on it. We're going to go into the gospels and talk about when Jesus mentioned Jonah and we're going to bounce off that. So one more week of Jonah uh, and then, uh, and we'll miss him, won't we? We're going to miss Jonah. But for now, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for... (laughs) The, the scriptures that just tell us like it is, and they don't, your Bible doesn't pull punches. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to, to live authentic Christian lives, not external obedience. That's not the target. That's not why you died and rose again. I pray that, Lord, each one of us would experience ongoing heart transformation in the name of Jesus. And if there's some of us who are struggling with this, Lord, with maybe slipping into like religious modes, I pray, Lord, that you would just, by your love and grace, pull us back into a place of authenticity and dynamic spiritual freedom in Jesus. Also, Lord, many of us, because we live in a culture that whose God is comfort, we slip into this. I'm praying, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to come against the spirit of the age, which is comfort at all costs, and be uncomfortable for you, Jesus. Uh, Lord, however that looks. Lord, what a tough message, but also a message that's grace-driven. None of this happens by our own strength. It happens by the power of Christ. Let us not be compelled, Lord, by force or by guilt or by shame, but let us be compelled by the compassion of Christ. We pray these things now in your beautiful name. Amen. 